The ceiling is the roof. We got a special edition today. Normally, I'm joined by Mike Machine Marshall, my coworker. Today, though, I'm joined by an adversary, an old rival, <laughs> a guy with whom I rarely agree, whether it's a December game against the Kings, whether it's the summer of 2019, we're always at odds. We're always at each other's throats. But today we're here to talk about the one thing that can unite us all, and that is our love of Dirk Nowitzki. I'm, of course, talking about the uh, dog avatar himself, the man from Virginia, Kirk Serious Face Henderson. Kirk, how are you? I'm well, and I am now Texas-based. That's true. You are, well, I don't want to dox you, but you live in a, you live in a, a city that I'm very familiar with. That's right. How do you like it so far? You're here during a it's, snowstorm, an ice storm. We've got I, two I, since I, you've moved here, man. What's going on? I apparently it's all my fault. Apparently, <clears throat> this one is is marginally less. This one's more funny because it's I you know city's all shut down. Yesterday was funny when things were closed at like four o'clock. Like I went to Chipotle, like the Chipotle is closed. Like guys, it's not raining. It's not even raining. What's going on? <laughs> but hey, we're you know it uh, it 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 allows for a little bit of a quieter day today. Um, and so we're here to talk basketball. Yeah, I did slip and slide on my way into the office, but luckily for me, it's just a, a commute by foot. So it was no problem. But if you're out and about drive safe, especially on overpasses, mm. seeing a lot of gnarly videos, it's not worth it. Uh, nothing is important enough. Your job is not going to get your, your boss is going to get mad at you if you're like five minutes late back to lunch. So don't worry about it. Um, Kirk today, we're here to talk about Dirk, man. And this idea has been cooking in my mind for a, a long time, but it came to the fore, um, Obviously, Kirk is from Mavs Moneyball, host of like 10 green rooms a day. I don't know. I guess you just live on Spotify. I don't really understand like your whole life schedule. Internet. Yeah, dude, you're just always online. You never log <laughs> off. But uh, whenever I was on with you, this came out like the day of or the day before Dirk's Jersey retirement game back in January. You had like a uh, 10 different people on this awesome episode of your, of your podcast is like me, like Jason Gallagher, Rob freaking Mahoney came on. I was like, whatever you do, please don't put me right after Rob because it's going to make me seem like an idiot. But uh, you just had this like this massive Dirk love fest. And that conversation really kind of just like reignited the thought in my mind of like you and I are old enough to have very vivid memories of the early to mid 2000s Mavs and into them winning the championship. There are a lot of people listening to this podcast that were probably alive when the Mavs won the title, but might not remember it very well. Certainly might not remember any elements of Dirk's early career. And uh, even if they do, they probably weren't old enough to really understand like what civilization was like back then. So uh, my idea is basically just what is it like to be a basketball fan before Twitter pretty much. And uh, considering you and I are two of the most perennially online people in Mavsdom. I figured we'd be kind of the, the two perfect people to talk about it. Sure. I mean, Dirk is, is sort of the evergreen topic to where you can come back now. You know, I, I really want to say like 13, 14 years after, because, you know, 2006 to 2010 were really 2007, 2007 to 2010 were, were not the most enjoyable times to be a Dirk fan. And now that we have enough hindsight, it's really, it's really great to kind of talk about the journey that being a basketball fan of Dirk the entire time really took you through because there's a, there's a lot going on. I mean, I've, I, I've referenced, I, I refer to it as the, like Dirk completed like the basketball hero's journey uh, because he was, you know, I, I always forget this. Like didn't Dirk make an all NBA team his third year? Like it yep, was, 2001, like, third team all NBA, which compare that to when he was a rookie and it was like, Oh no, what did Dallas do? Like the Dallas morning news ran a Paul Pierce, Dirk Nowitzki tracker every day <laughs> because fans like it was just, it was it there, you know, but fandom was different in those days, that day and age, you know, the internet was new, but it's, there was like, so it's just like, there's so many different elements you can talk about where, you know, where Dirk is concerned that it's, it's kind of hard to know where to start. That's why like, the, the Jersey retirement ceremony was so cool uh, in that it encompassed a great deal of Dirk's career. It did sort of seem like his career stopped after the 2011 finals <laughs> based on that video. But when you play for 21 years, you can only do so much in a, in a video package. And it's just like, yeah, I, I'm always happy to talk about Dirk. Because that podcast I did that day, you're right. Like that kind of came together last minute and was it was 
I didn't even talk. It was everyone else, you know, and I look at me rambling now. It was just excellent. It was like an hour and a half of, of people telling Dirk stories. Well, you are the guest, Kirk. You're entitled to talk as much or as little as you want to. <laughs> yeah. So, where, I mean, where, should, where do you think we should even start with this? Okay. So, my the initial question that I wrote down was, what was it like to be a basketball, fans and, a basketball fan in the early 2000s? But that is like, that is way too vague to even like completely wrap your head around uh let alone form coherent thoughts I, I think i can try though okay i think i can try so some of this depends on your age but i was in high school i graduated high school in 2002 so okay the the to, to give people sort of context the vince carter dunk contest happened my sophomore year of high school and that's sort of a seminal point in basketball culture um 22 years later, we still talk about that dunk contest and the things he did with like reverence. And at that point in time, being a basketball fan was really, you know, it's the post Jordan era. It's like four years after uh, a Jordan, no, two years after Jordan retired in 98. Um, he hadn't quite come back yet, but it was still like Jordan cast a big shadow over the league. And the early 2000s generally was like the rise of the big man power forward as the focal point of teams where Dirk was kind of a, a B lister, relatively speaking to Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, Chris Weber, who people just forget. Like you it go through, awesome. it's just an unbelievable, like, man, I, those Kings teams were unreal. And so it's like, you know, the, the Lakers won championships in 2000, 2001, and 2002, and then lost to something. Who The Detroit Pistons, Kirk. Was that three or 04? That was, that was the 2004 finals, yeah. 03, they got eliminated by the Spurs. Spurs. Spurs won the title that year. Yeah. So it's like there's there's just kind of a, you know, the, the, the Suns then like kind of took over there in the mid-2000s. And so basketball kind of culture at that point was a lot more dominated by like Slam Magazine and sort of the rise of these kind of guys. And Dirk was just kind of always there. Um, he was popular. I think we we sometimes misstate that, that he wasn't like a top-tier guy. But like Dirk was on that ESPN cover with Tracy McGrady where he's wearing that hilarious cross um the, it's just there's yeah. so much and and so Dirk and the Mavericks were a popular team because for for anybody that's under the age of 25 I cannot describe to you what Nelly Ball was like other than to say basketball was being played one way and Nelly came in with the Mavericks and started doing some really wild stuff in the early 2000s and it became something different it, it in a way that impacts the way basketball is played now. Um, yeah, so you you look at the rankings, by the way. I, I did that the other day. Like, I, I in my mind, I have this vision of the 03 Mavs as like the space age basketball team. They were playing 96 possessions a game back then. Like the Mavs of today are faster than them, but it's all relative, right? Sometimes that the opponents burn the shot clock too. So sure. some of that has to do with the the other guy, but. uh the Mavs were like far and away. The it was them and the Kings. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. They were the mm -hmm. only two teams playing anything remotely similar to what we see nowadays. So, so being a Dirk fan in those days was sort of chasing the white whale of the Shaquille O'Neal led teams, uh, because the, you know you go look at Basketball Reference. The Mavericks have so many centers from like 99 to 2003. And then when they, they, they played the one year with Danny Fortson starting at center, that had to be the start of the 03, 04 season, if I'm yep. remembering correctly. And like that, at that point, they had sort of petered off that, but you know, there Shaq was just such a dominating force in the two thousands that everybody was chasing. And that's where, you know, Dirk getting hurt in the, was it the 2002 playoffs? Oh, three against oh, three playoffs that that one sort of haunts older Mavericks fans because that team was so good and that's where it's like like so much about winning a championship is is luck is baked into it uh more you know it's like you obviously gotta have good players but there's there's a luck element involved in staying healthy and so that Mavs team sort of if if they would have gone further, I think it would have changed how basketball was perceived. But again, the Mavericks just sort of, uh, you know, after the, o, the start of the 0405 year, I think, when, whenever they ended up getting Devin Harris was sort of a, a, a culture shift in the way they played. They ended up sort of playing differently under Avery once once Nelson left the team. 
And, you know, they, they ended up getting the finals, obviously, in, two six play, uh, in 2006 and playing Shaq. But at that point, Shaq was older, and then Dwayne Wade and sort of the next class of guys started to take over the league from, like, the 03, uh, 04 draft classes. And so at that point, Dirk was starting to kind of fade, not like fade in the background, but he wasn't the the – he wasn't like top billing the way some of these other guys were getting. So being a, a Dirk fan in those eras was a little bit strange. You know, I always compare, uh, I remember what Chris Bosch said. Um, Chris Bosch is my age and he was not a Mavericks fan. And he, you know, went to Dallas Lincoln. He was a Tim Duncan fan. And like that just sort of, it's, it's a specifically strange thing, but it sort of just blows my mind that the Mavericks were really good when he was a younger man, but he was still a fan of Duncan over the local team. And so it's like the, the Mavericks were always just kind of always a bridesmaid for, for everyone but the hardcore. Um, the, the latter half of the 2000s, the DallasBasketball.com forums and some of these places where true basketball toxicity was born. Um, <laughs> There's I a lot of say people like where out... the true super fans hung out, but oh, no, you well, just... I mean, if everybody who thinks Twitter sucks, don't get me wrong, Twitter can stink, but some of these 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 forums were dark. Ben Collins, <laughs> Ben Collins of NBC News and former Mavericks child reporter would get trashed. He was 13, and they were trashing his articles. Just amazing, horrible stuff from people sitting behind keyboards. Um, Those guys drove Ben to cover QAnon. You know, like, <laughs> well, I mean, that's it prepared, how powerful yeah. they were. It prepared him. And there's a lot of people out there who better hope that no one ever like digs through the archives because there were a ton of Mavs fans at that point who did not think Dirk could get it done. And in saying that out loud now even feels gross and dirty because we just kind of hand waved that. And I see it right now. And I know we're not here to talk about the current times, but like even in Mavs Moneyball comments, there's a whole bunch of people that just don't like Luca. And I'm like, what planet are you people on? This is the best player. Like, and, and it's the same thing with Dirk. Like they weren't getting a better player than Dirk. So why would you want to trade him I, anyway? So it's like, that's like being in the, in the 2000s, being a basketball fan of Dirk meant being really kind of very hardcore into a player that was not as popular as the next guy, even though he was really, really fun. And those, that specific forum, I guess, aside in those days, you know, and I don't mean to be too like old people sitting around on our porch, like getting ready to go to Luby's or anything, but like <laughs> in those days, there wasn't like a, the, the, watching basketball was not a group experience in no, the way it is yeah. now. You had to um, seek out people. You had to bother your neighbors. Yeah, or like make <laughs> friends at school. Like, for example, mm -hmm. you know, you were, you graduated when in 02, you said? Yeah. I didn't graduate high school until 2009. So I was still kind of like a, a kid, basically, during right. Dirk's prime, during his peak. I was, you know, teenager. There were some of my classmates that loved the Mavs, but then everyone else loved Kobe. They loved mm -hmm. LeBron. You know, they, whatever. Give me the other guys. They liked the Heat. Uh, they liked the Celtics, you know. Um, and so there was this feeling of kind of isolation and there weren't really many places to go to talk about it or to meet people that also like the Mavs because, you know, basketball itself, even though it's very popular is still relatively a niche sport, you know, mm -hmm. especially in Dallas, people love the Cowboys. Um, you're, it's kind of, you're kind of a hipster if you're a big Mavs fan. Um, and so there aren't there, I don't know. It just didn't feel like there were many of them in those days. I guess part of that was being young as well. It was very eye-opening to come to Twitter now, and there's a bajillion people that love the maps. Um, but it was kind of, I, I, I think, like the feeling of sort of, I don't know, maybe isolation or, or yeah. loneliness. That might not be the right word. I feel like helped you connect with Dirk a little more than maybe it would have if, if he came along nowadays because if you're by yourself or if you hold this unpopular opinion that, like, this soft European is good, actually, then uh, – you're kind of on your own journey as well, like right alongside him. You can really identify with Dirk. Um, and there are other, a lot of other kind of identifiable, identifiable traits about him and his rise and his game and everything. Um, one of those being how many times he failed before mm. he finally succeeded. You know, uh, that's a very human thing, failure and mistakes and, uh, and rebounding and improving and learning. Um, but I also think too, you know, just kind of the whole retrospective thing it's impossible to tell those stories without the benefit of knowing that it had a happy ending. Uh, feel, the, the feeling that we had in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, when they just failed again and again and again, 
it felt like you're in like this never-ending death trap torture chamber like we didn't know how the story was gonna end and so i it, it tested i guess i don't know patience loyalty all of that stuff i think is kind of silly to even say but like it really was an exercise in futility for yeah. those those five or so years because we didn't know that 2011 was going to happen. We do now. We know now that it happened. So we could say, oh, and they lost in 06. It just made him stronger. You know, the, fa the failure in 07, when he went to Australia, he changed. He became, you know, hiring Rick was the right move. He put Dirk back on the perimeter. Like, all of these things, it felt so hopeless mm -hmm. at the time. Like, it, it just, it every single season that went by, it felt like, well, that was the last chance that we had. You know, well, you're never going to win 60 again. You're never going to make it to the finals again. You're never going to win 67 again. You're, <laughs> you're never going to be able to get another coach. Like, it just felt hopeless every single day. While they were still cranking out 50 win seasons. Exactly. That's the, yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was just a, like a sense of inevitability. And that's why. 11 straight seasons of 50 wins. <laughs> 2011, you go check out ESPN's predictions for every playoff series beforehand. Even at the time. You couldn't, from a narrative point of view, from a basketball point of view, this is where we're just in a different era now. People weren't watching all the games then. People watch all the games now. But a lot of the, the reason narrative stuff sticks in basketball is because it's hard to watch 82 games for 30 teams. It's just you can't do it. And in 2011, there was at least some sort of justification where it's like, okay, well, the Mavs have failed on this stage repeatedly. I don't care how good they are. They're going to have to prove it to me because they've yet to prove it. And I, I got that from a, from a narrative point of view, despite the fact that that team, you know, had they not lost nine in a row when Butler got hurt or whatever it was, they would have gone into, you know, they would have been a much, you know, that, that's just kind of a different deal. But it's, it's really wild because those years, the, the 08, 09, 010, like 09, 010, before they, they, they traded away Josh Howard, those teams were still really good, like really good. We had a guy uh, on Mavs Moneyball, Matthew Phillips, wrote kind of a, about a forgotten Dirk series. He was talking about that 09 Denver series. Oh, yeah, where Dirk, he kicked where, their ass. He was monstrous, and he was having all those personal life issues at the time while still destroying teams and making – and Barkley just savaged him at, at, at for, for making comments about how the Nuggets were actually, like, playing well. It's like, like really just weird, so much odd stuff. And like, you go check out Dirk's numbers in that series and there's an argument to be made. He might not have been ever been better. Like he was just dominant. It's, it's very crazy to think about when you think about just the stretches of his play. And he, he, he was so incredible kind of during those lost years. And I think at some point that that section of time is worth revisiting because they were really good, but they weren't good enough. And, and, you know, it's, it's pretty wild that they stumbled into, uh, Tyson Chandler, how they did, and then you know went on the run in, in ten and eleven. I mean that era, that lost era that you're talking about. I mean Dirk's career essentially overlapped with Tim Duncan's almost completely. Duncan came in, I think, two years before Dirk did, or one year before Dirk did. Obviously, left a couple years before Dirk did as well. But the span of Duncan's career, or at least like the ma the main years, like ninety nine, two thousand, in there through the end, Duncan was number one in the NBA in plus minus. Dirk was number two. You know, the Spurs were number one in wins. The Mavs were number two. Um, and it's very, you know, the always a bridesmaid thing is true because Dirk's career just so happened to overlap with one of the best basketball, extended basketball dynasties in the history of the world. <laughs> you know, the Celtics in the, in the 50s and 60s were sensational. But, I mean, to overlap with the Spurs, dude, is very tough. And it's hard to... You can't just wave a magic wand and make Tim Duncan or Pop disappear or whatever. Right. But like, what if Duncan had gone to Orlando? Like, would the Mavs have just gone to the finals five years in a row? I mean, like, we have no way of knowing how things would have shaken out because, you know, the Spurs did eliminate the Mavs in 01 and 03 uh, and in 2010. I mean, yeah. Duncan was there for all of those. In 2014, they got eliminated. You know, the Mavs were the eight seed. They almost beat the Spurs. Um so that's an important thing, too, because even though, you know, like you said, the NBA was in Michael Jordan's shadow and then Dirk came along. Dirk was in Duncan's shadow uh, forever. You know, Avery Johnson, Nelly, Rick, they were all in Pop in Pop's shadow. Um, and so there's not only this looming sense of dread of like all of these opportunities are slipping away, 
But as the Mavs are sort of fading into seventh seed obscurity, even though they're still winning 50 every year, Spurs are never getting any worse. Nope. You know, that was, that made it even more of a, just an absolute butt whooping every single day of your life because, you know, it felt like you were getting further away from the goal as the Spurs were still just racking them up, baby. And mm-hmm. it just felt, it just felt like they're just a, just the ultimate villain. <laughs> like it just, it made me hate the Spurs because they were able to do what Dirk wasn't. Every year. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> Every single year, dude. Okay. So I want to rewind a little bit. Um, 2001, 2002 into 2003, because like, you know, not many YouTube highlights of Dirk's games exist at all. And we have mm-hmm. some archives around here that we just can't release because of contracts and stuff. Sure. But like early career Dirk was not very good. You know, his first year was a, was a slog, you know, in his second like year. Small he averaged, forward. Yeah. Now he played him. It's like, like it's, 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 a, he was small forward of when with like Sean Bradley at center and God, who played power? They had like a, a rotating cast of power forward. I mean, he like, played alongside like uh, Gary Trent and then, you know, <laughs> later on Jawan Howard and some other mm-hmm. guys, but you know, his first year was, was pretty bad. His second year, he averaged 17 a game. Okay. Third year averaged 21 a game. You know, Dirk's early career was nothing like Luca's. You know, we've known that Luca is, oh my God, good since like the second game of his career, basically. Um, (laughs) There were some questions of like, okay, you know, it might take him a couple years to just adjust to the style. It it was there. Yeah, it It took him a couple years. It was not if. Yeah. Dirk, it took him till year three or year four. And so, you know, that sort of gradual emergence, um, relying on Finley and then kind of taking the mantle from him. And then running this great two-man game with Nash for so long, Steve Nash ends up assisting Dirk on more field goals uh, than any other player in Dirk's career, which I think is pretty surprising. I would have thought Jay Kidd or maybe even Jet would have held that title. But then both of those guys are gone. You know, by 2005, 2006, they're gone. And so, like, Dirk steadily sort of became the alpha. You know, there was like a year-by-year rise in his responsibility and his usage and everything to where I, I feel like it doesn't really compare much to Luca's because for Luca, we've seen Luca handle the number one workload in the NBA for like four years now. Uh, number one in usage every single season. Dirk, I'm not sure ever was, and he certainly was not even close until like year six or year seven. And so that kind of development felt like a, like a 2K my player thing where every year he's getting like two points better at this thing and three points better at that thing, um, which was kind of exciting to watch too because Every single year, you were like, what is he going to get better at this time? That sort of thing was wild to watch because I really undervalued it in hindsight because dudes don't do that anymore. Um, When we talk about modern players, it's usually like something really specific or really broad. Like in Luca's case, the last two years have been like, well, when he decides to become, you know, really take his his off-season training seriously like off-season training is like broad strokes whereas Dirk was like you know oh I'm going to learn how to become a post player like (laughs) it's hard to understate that because that's just you know like becoming better at an entire different facet not just better becoming the dominant scorer from certain sections of the floor in like the last 30 years Dirk just sort of Dirk and, and, and his mentor just sort of did that. And it's really um, it's, if anything, it's probably one of the most under discussed elements of, of Dirk's uh, style of play because early year, early career Dirk, like Oh three Oh two. when we're talking about that man was wildly athletic and maybe not in the way that we talk about athleticism in terms of like sheer verticality, but quick twitch stuff. Um, the ability to drive, like he was shot, like there's incredible gifts of him dunking just, you know, you, which you wouldn't think like, Oh, Dirk dunking. No, he would dunk on dudes. And then when he comes, you know, as he starts to get a little older and Avery forced him to go to the post to play, you know, a little bit like Duncan that he actually did it is so wild to me in hindsight, because, you know, how often have did Shaquille O'Neal beat the crap out of Dwight Howard where it's like, just become this dude. Or, you know, and do like guys don't want to play that way. We see it every, you know, they want to play how they want to play. And it's very, you know, uh, Jonathan Sharks talks about this all the time where it's like getting a, 
a guy to change what he wants to do from what he might be good at is one of the hardest things to do for star level players. And Dirk just did it and no, like quietly, to- quietly working. It's incredible. With very little to no drop off, not only in his game, like in his stats, his efficiency, but also in the teams. I mean, they were top five, top 10 offense basically every year of his career up until, you know, the very end, mm-hmm. um, which is extremely impressive. And then Rick came along and, you know, like, you know, more perimeter under Nelly and then more post up under Avery. And then Rick kind of blended the two. But that's even doing Rick and Dirk a disservice because what what Dirk did in Rick's offense, and obviously this reached its sort of crescendo in 2011, was Dirk had the ability to face up a guy on the perimeter from 22 feet out and then dribble into a spinning fadeaway or dribble into a post up or dribble past him and just go right to the basket or step out and shoot the three like from a face-up triple threat position he could do anything i mean he was a complete player a complete offensive player um but all of that stuff you know for us we got to see it happen over the years we got to see him develop these things like he didn't come into the league with a one-legged fade he didn't come into the league with the the whirling dervish at the free throw line where he fakes 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 spins fakes you know and then fades away that he did against the thunder so many times like all of these in 2011, all of these moves, all of these these skills, all of these little hot spots on the floor were things that he developed and added and tweaked and sort of reformatted year after year for 21 seasons. Like, and then even in even in post super post prime 2014, he's flirting with 30, 40, 50, 40, 90, and he's like 38 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the very tail end of his career, 2017, 18, dude, second to last year of his career. That was like the most three-point attempts he's ever taken, I think, at least since his second or third year. I mean, he was constantly changing and constantly adding and constantly tweaking. And uh, that's something, too, that I just don't think that we'll see. And some of that is because I think, you know, not to be, again, you know, get off my lawn guy, but, like, the game is a little more, I think, homogenous. Offense is a mm-hmm. little more, um, a, a little similar across the board. But, like, I'm just not sure we're ever going to see Luca, you know, go to Slovenia for the summer and come back and just have a completely new thing in his no. game. You know, he kind well, of did it last year with the mid-range, I guess. But, like, he didn't have a move. It just sort of happened. Like, Dirk would, like, have whole moves, counter moves. You know, like, he'd have a whole menu of options just developed overnight. There's only, like, three to four guys in the modern NBA that I think actually have done this over the last 10 years, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Giannis Attentacumpo, who might be the, in terms of like game evolution might be the best comparison for like building block pieces. And for anybody who hasn't watched Giannis lately, he now has a 15 foot jumper on a pull-up, which Dude, he's so amazing. It's so unfair. And the unfairness element is what makes me think of Dirk because there was a sense of hopelessness involved in playing Dirk on defense. You know, no game really highlights that better than the, what was it? The 48 point, like 13 shot performance against the thunder where he just had, it took 25 free throws and made 25 free throws because he had those like an entire offense or defense in prison. And, you know, you said something a second ago, we had a guy turn in a piece of stuff today kind of talking about the Mavericks improved defense this year. And one of the things he pointed out is like the middle of the floor is the single hardest part to defend um, because it just, you can do so much from it, which, you know, with a lot of the heliocentric stuff, you don't really get middle of the floor offense anymore, but Dirk where he operated from there, he was just like the gravity from everybody else everyone's always a step closer because of him. And when, you know, that's what, what if, if Bob Sturm's book this year will be different, talked about how like in the last 15 games, the 2010, 2011 season, someone was able to finally convince Rick to, Hey, maybe Jason Terry should take a step back from the short corner and hit this corner three, um, which that was then they, you know, they went from being like a destructive offense to being like just absolutely world eating. Um, and Dirk operating in the center of the floor and being like that true triple threat was so hard to defend against in every sense. It's it, it it's why like now Josh Bow and I are always like clamoring. We're like, can we make Luca the role man? Because it's like operating from that center of the floor. It's it's horrifying to defend. So yeah, I mean, 07, the reason he lost the Warriors. Well, I mean, one of them. There were many, but one of the main reasons that the Warriors were able to kind of contain Dirk or really shut him down 
was because he was getting a lot of these baseline post-ups very easy to double team in the baseline because yep. the baseline and the sideline are defenders. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Rick Carlisle comes in a couple years later and says, you know what? No more baseline stuff. Like we might give you some ISOs down there every now and then I'm planning you at the nail because in the middle of the floor, it is impossible to double team without giving up something that's very easy. And yep. so not only did Dirk develop a completely new game to go to the middle of the floor, like you said, but also he became much better at passing out of double teams. You know, that was a skill that he didn't, maybe he had it, maybe he didn't, but he didn't have the opportunity to show it off at all. You know, but I mean, you go back and watch film of the 2011 team, he's making reads like that all the time and yeah. feeling guys coming, you know, and and that is, again, I, I, I just think of, you know, Luca as this sort of like magician. Dirk was a master. You know, Dirk was a, he was a tactician. He completely... He just completely had a, a a total understanding of everything that was going on at all times, um, which is something actually that's talked about. Not to not to plug my guy, it's sort of a non sequitur, but uh, the great Novitsky, this book that that Thomas Plessinger wrote, talks about kind of Dirk's like how he practices uh, or how he practiced, I guess I should say, with Holger, going over extraordinarily specific and obscure game situations like. You're up seven with four possessions left. What do you do? Or like you're down five with three possessions left. What do you do? All right, let's go do it. Like these things that like you just work on over and over and over and over and over again, these scenarios that seem very unlikely or these positions on the floor that seem very unlikely. But to him, he was just a human computer. Like he knew exactly what to do all the time based on the way everything was happening, which is something that we normally say about point guards yeah like Dirk was a power forward he was not bringing the ball to the floor he wasn't initiating anything he was the end point you know and so for him to have that sort of machine-like memory and, and and ability to anticipate is I think what helped him overcome you know any sort of uh athleticism drop off as he aged yeah yeah I mean the like the 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 ability to think the game is what separates like like great players from superstars in a lot of ways because you've got to be able to adapt as your body slows down in certain respects because you know these guys are still world-class athletes but oftentimes and this is what we saw like late late in Dirk's career the ability to to or sometimes the inability to to not get that step is what makes a difference and if you're able to think ahead and say all right this is situation that you know Chris Paul is kind of the the modern example of this of like a guy who has just gotten every ounce of of play from his body because he uses his mind to the fullest extent and it's very annoying that he is still able to get that little step back 18 footer all the time because <laughs> like time. you know he's going to do it why do you keep falling for it why do you keep falling how many times does he have to stick <laughs> that right in your eye in order for you to finally react to that um okay so there's there's two kind of very period specific questions that I have to ask for you. And then I'll just give you the floor to say whatever you want about Dirk before, uh, before we get out of here. One, which hurt more. And I want you to walk me through your thought process, because again, the internet barely existed back then. This is ancient times, 2006, 2007, which of those two endings hurt more losing to Miami in the finals, uh, up basically 2.75 games to zero in the series and then and then giving it away in six or 2007 winning 67 games number one seed in the west uber title favorites and then they kind of got uh manhandled by all our old friend nelly and the golden state mm. warriors it would have to be 06 because in 06 i had nothing i had graduated from college but didn't have a job and was living at my then girlfriend's mom's house looking for work and so like being able to go through those playoffs was so uplifting and awesome and then i still remember where i was sitting for the the Dwayne wade free throw fest and her uncle's house which one because there were many <laughs> the first one the one oh, okay. that was like what is happening yeah you're like you know we weren't really prepared for how how terrible it went um that was that was really probably the most painful one because in 07, 06 or 07 season, I had just moved to Washington, D.C. and couldn't afford League Pass. So I primarily followed the team through national television games and through ESPN um, oh, okay. and then like through like True Hoop. Um, I don't like that was kind of you know, that was really when I started to like delve into Internet basketball stuff. Um, so that was that was really 
was that one was hard because it was just so it was just so painful because it was like oh this again you know because that i'd love to throw this number out i'm pretty sure the mavericks at, at one point in the 06 07 season went on a 52 and 4 run they um, did kirk they did like so, so you start by losing four games then you go on a 52 and 4 run and then you lose then they basically played like 500 ball the last 15 games of the year and in hindsight that should have been the alarm bell to everyone and why even 14 15 years later you know i remember when i was griping about the team this year where it's like okay but the, the thing about in the first 10 20 games where it's like i would always come back to the fact like this really sucks but it's best to get the suck out of the way as opposed to falling down the stretch which is what the mavericks sort of did in that year even before um nelly you know started blitzing dirk's weak side they, they they were not playing their best basketball and so that one felt a little it was very, very frustrating. And like the after effects of that were really painful, kind of more long-term, you know, Dirk, uh, I went and found the Dirk walkabout article um, that was done. I want to say it was done by like, it was local. It was one of the local magazines. I can't remember mm. which one. It's crazy that that thing was even written because no professional athlete would give that kind of access at this point in time. Again, like, mm. it just talks about it for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, like just like Google Dirk Nowitzki walkabout. And there's a kind of a first person article written on his behalf um, about his experience in Australia. He just, basically went on a walk of shame across an entire yeah, continent. Dude. Yeah. It, it's extremely emotional in hindsight. Like I can't, it's kind of, it's just the sort of thing now that would dominate uh, internet and like ESPN basketball talk shows for like two days. Cause you, you couldn't, couldn't imagine Kobe Bryant going on a walkabout after losing to the Mavericks in 2011. Like not a thing that would happen. No, so, not at all. Not at all. Anyway, this so. sort of like sense of kind of innate nihilism mm. inside of Dirk. And I, I, from what I understand, and I'm not trying to like insult anyone or, or say anything, but like Maxie's very much the same way. Very and, German. And, <laughs> yeah. And get, yeah. And getting to know a lot of German journalists. I mean, that's just kind of, there's this sort of, that is a German thing kind of uh, pessimism, I guess. Um, and Dirk was, throughout the entire 06-07 season, they're just steamrolling everybody. Mm -hmm. Every single interview he would ever give, people would be like, you've won 27 of the last 28 games. And Dirk is like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters until June. That's what he said over and over and over again. And they didn't even get the chance to kind of prove it that season. Yep. And that sort of just like utter devastation. I feel like that is much tougher to kind of wash away and cleanse yourself of than losing in the finals however you were in the finals you mm -hmm. know you're up basically yep. three to nothing you got the champagne on ice already like it's happening and then for it to just kind of get taken away partially given away partially you know no one really knows exactly what happened uh it felt like they lost one there and it, it just oh six felt like it wasn't fair oh seven felt like this is just there's no way that I could ever be emotionally invested in a team again, you know, yeah. after like those two things and those two things happen back to back. Like, so that's partially why whenever the Mavs lose on a Chimezi Metu buzzer beater, I'm like, I just <laughs> can't let myself get mad about this because it like, I've been through so much worse, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and there was a, like, frankly, like, 07 in those those playoffs was this it was not the end of the worst it was the beginning of the worst because I want to say it was the next season when there was an incident where David West who oh, yeah. has since referred to Dirk as the single hardest person he had to cover but David West put his hand on Dirk's face and basically pushed him away like almost started kind of a near fight it was a nasty moment where none of Dirk's teammates came to his defense, where Dirk didn't do anything because he's not that kind of, you know, what are these guys going to do? Are they actually going to fight? But it was a moment where the Mavericks really were defanged and it became a talking point. There's still a, a, a true hoop article you can go find on, on ESPN about this, where it's just, it's an extremely, it was an extremely uncomfortable moment as a fan because it was just like, you know, basketball is a lot of macho culture. We, it's changed in the last 10 years but at the heart of it it's a competitive endeavor and people get really emotional and angry and watching that specific moment is something that will always it's just it, it was it was a very low point because at that point you felt 
as a fan, I did as a fan that the respect for Dirk Nowitzki was no longer there. Um, and like this team is just not together. I mean, what's mm-hmm. going on here, you know, mm-hmm. and the same thing kind of happened the next year as well. You know, the, the Mavs new coach. Okay. A lot of new players. Okay. They beat the Spurs in the first round. They go to the second round against the Nuggets and kind of the same thing happens yep. again that happened against the Warriors that happened against the Hornets where you show a little toughness, you show a little swagger, you play with a little intensity, you maybe take some cheap shots. Nothing's going to happen. Yep. You know, there was like defanged is, is such a good word to use for that whole thing. Then it's, that's probably when it was the hardest point to be like a very public, like, like being a Mavs fan at that point in time was not, that was when it was at its ebb in terms, like you were a hardcore fan. If you were, even though the team was really good, it's just, I don't think anybody believed in them. So, so they were, that, they were betas. They were, be- yeah. I mean, that's kind of the perception. That, I'm not saying that that's that three year stretch was, was probably the most difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings my, kind of my last question. Um, everyone knows how 2011 feels. We've talked about that at length in a billion different platforms. 2010. The Mavs finished second in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were like a couple games behind the Lakers. They were the Mavs were very, very good that year. Uh, they make this big midseason trade. They bring in Brendan Haywood, who had probably the greatest contract year performance of all time. Uh, they bring in Karan Butler, Deshaun Stevenson. All right, so he got some toughness, got some athletes, got some talent, got some, you know, uh, finally got a center. Like everything, we're God, we're gonna win the championship. It's happening this year. Mavs are rolling. They won like 21 out of 22 games to finish the year or something like they just, they were soaring. They faced the seven seed Spurs and they lose. And that was the final year of Dirk's contract. Um, And after that game, you know, someone asked Dirk, like, you sticking around here or what? (laughs) And Dirk was noncommittal. And that was a harrowing moment for me watching that interview after that (laughs) series because like even though I understand Dirk after losses he doesn't he's gonna talk because he's a pro he doesn't want to talk you know so him saying he said I don't know we'll see whatever 10,000 times and is it but in that moment it felt like a legitimate possibility that that might have been Dirk's last game and I don't know maybe it's all my head but of course hindsight's 2020 he signs an extension with cubes. He goes over to his house. They knock it out. They win the title. All's well that ends well. But like, dude, in the moment, I don't, did you feel that too? Do you even remember that? Uh, what was that couple weeks? I must have blanked. I must have blanked a lot of that out of my mind because I spent most of the off season being pissed off. Uh, Karan Butler, who thought, and and this is my hot take. Not you know, I could be wrong, but. I really think Butler thought he was one A, he was one B to Dirk's one A, which was just not the case. He shot a ton in that Spurs series, drove me crazy. He mm. shot seven fewer shots than Dirk. I still remember this, and I just looked it up because. It's, but so I, I just don't think I ever really let that go through my mind. But if if it were today, the way we consume stuff today, and the way we, and in some cases, very specifically me overreact <laughs> to pieces of information i would lose my mind oh, yeah. um i think i've just kind of like calmly like blanked that period out because it was like oh well, where's he, like what's he gonna do where's he gonna go like it, i i just don't think i ever let that thought that was in. the summer remember yeah. that was the summer lebron wade mm-hmm. bosh mel all of these guys were free agents yep everyone was a free agent maybe not mellow mellow was already maybe stoudemire some of those like big, Joe Johnson a big free agency class. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, anything's possible. We had never mm. seen, you know, the, the, the big three in Miami hadn't formed or whatever, but like there were whispers that people yeah. were going to be recruiting people, you know? Yeah. And it was not that I ever thought Dirk would like be the Bosch in Miami, sure. but like, who knows, dude? I mean, how many times can they lose, you know, before he's finally like, you know what? F this I'm getting out of here. Right. Um, but he he stuck around. But yeah, I mean that was just for for a couple of weeks. It was it felt a little hairy. And now maybe that's just my innate sort of sense of uh, pessimism because uh, you know as much as an optimistic guy as I am, um, you know I'm very much pessimistic on the inside, I guess. And I thought it was it. I thought I thought he was done. I thought he was out of here. And uh, I'm very glad that he wasn't. But. I don't know. I <laughs> I don't want to end on a negative. I mean, how do I don't want to turn that into positive? But like, 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think that we arrived at the beginning, which is, you know, had that happened today, it would be a totally different experience. Like you wouldn't be able to blank it out. I wouldn't be able to hide my pessimism because it would all be happening in front of us. We'd all be a part of it. It'd be happening online right now. You know, even if we were just fans and not uh, personalities, like these things are inescapable now. Yeah. Um, but this sense of community is also very cathartic, even in the bad times. I, I totally understand that and respect that and everything. But like, I don't know this that that entire five years of filth that we had to swim through and, and yeah. scratch and claw our way through to get out of uh, Shawshank, like that was an that was an isolated thing we were on our own i feel like we're tougher now because we survived it uh yeah. whereas whereas today like we'd be able to lean on each other which is cool in its own way but like i don't know it it, it felt like in those moments again because you had no one else to talk to it felt like we were right there with dirk which felt again 2011 was not just his championship it was our championship mm -hmm. i i i think that's 100 percent the case and really is kind of a good explainer for like why you know, you often tease me where you're like, why do you do all this stuff? Because it's not for the money. Like, there's not any money that matters, you know? And it's like, you do it because you really enjoy the process and the sport. And that sort of thing gets forged during really hard times where you like it anyways, where you keep coming back. And that's probably the you know, I, I would never want to speak for Dirk, but understanding the way he talks about basketball, finishing the fight was a big part of why he constantly kept coming back. He wanted to, and that's why he's going to be, you know, that's why he's going to be the, the greatest Dallas Maverick for all time. Um, it's very, you know, it, it, this sort of thing is just so, it, it, it's so rare in sports. And, you know, it's why those of us who were fans during the, the, during the, the rise and then kind of stuck through it during the, the rebuilding process. It's that's, that's why you are this way. I mean, it's, it's, it's sometimes a bit strange to talk about because people who don't really get into sports this way, just have a very hard time understanding why we do this sort of stuff, but it's like, that's why, because it's, it's a great feeling and the process is it, it can be both extremely frustrated, but also extraordinarily fun. Absolutely, man. The journey is the destination. I know that's corny, but like, no, it is. It is also better if your journey ends with the championship. I will just <laughs> say that. Having been there, it's way better. Uh, any uh, any final words? Any parting thoughts? I mean, any, I, I I don't know. We could talk for twelve hours about Dirk. No, but I do think the 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 well, that's not true. I always have a final thought. The thing <laughs> about Dirk, and the thing about as you tell, and I I, I sort of mean this like a. There's been a lot of like Carl Anthony Towns chatter lately. And I use him as a jumping off point because I think he's excellent. But he, there's a lot of cart before the horse in the NBA these days. And with what Dirk did, the style of play, sort of what you mentioned, even with like the early game tape, explaining to people who are younger why he mattered and why he was so good is going to get increasingly difficult with time. And so part of why I never turned down an opportunity to talk about it is because I want people to understand why I want people to understand this stuff, particularly, you know, the, a lot of the younger folks that I, I interact with on social media that are huge fans. But I think like they appreciate Dirk the way you appreciate like a, a relative that you're, you know, a famous relative that you're, you're cognizant of, but didn't really get to spend a lot of time. I with. love you, granddad. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like that. I mean, that's, Shoot, he shuffles like that. Man, that watching him walk these days hurts me. Yeah. Um, but it's it's that sort of deal where I think it's worth continuing to talk about these very specific players. And it's almost something that I wish the NBA would do more often. Like the 75th anniversary stuff was so cool because you saw these people in one room and the reverence they have for each other is what is so cool about athletes that are just at that level. Um, and, and I, I, I hope that we can just, you know, always find a reason to talk about him, to loop him back in, you know, it, it can, I think sometimes we wear our audiences out who are very hardcore into this, but you know, he's a, Dirk's a great entry point for the NBA. He just is. Absolutely. So. Easy to identify with. And, and your final point will lead to my final point about towns. Towns is excellent. Um, but, and this is, this is one thing that I kind of like really learned from rick carlisle who did not give much in interviews or press conferences um did not impart many life lessons upon 
me and the media um, as a whole. But one thing that I really learned from Rick was what like greatness is and what greatness means. And using the word greatest or great or greatness or that means something, you know, there are other words to use. Um, most accurate, best, whatever. But greatness is something that you earn, that you achieve, and that you demonstrate every single day over a very long period of time at the highest level possible. You know, um, you and I are prolific. Are either of us great? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, but we're prolific. Carl Anthony Towns is prolific. He makes a ton of shots. But Dirk is Dirk is greatness. He achieved greatness by working and improving every single day, um, by being consistent, uh, by achieving individually and as a team year after year after year, by crawling through three miles of crud in order to become a champion. Um, that is something that you earn. You cannot bestow that upon someone on Twitter after a three-point contest. And so I don't want to end the pod about Dirk by talking about Towns, but like, I'm very glad that you brought that up because um, it's important to always understand that. And it's kind of our job, you, yours and mine specifically, but also anyone listening to this, we are all the guardians, if you will, of Dirk's legacy. It is ours to maintain. It is ours to uphold. It is ours to upkeep because Lord knows Dirk is not going to do any advocating for himself, you know, on his own behalf. Dirk is never going to talk about how great he ever was. You know, that's our job to do. And so even if it helps people's engagement to reply to them and call them an idiot, do it anyway, man. We got to defend our guy. We got to defend our guy, Kirk. We got to, we will, that is my favorite. Whatever is needed. You are the, like, you never engage on things that are sort of fan, like troll bait. And that's like the one thing where it's like, oh, there's Bobby being a reply guy. That's new. There's my line. (laughs) It's my line. I, I, that is the one thing because I spent, you know, of, of Dirk's played 21 seasons. I maybe missed like two games in his career. I maybe <laughs> missed like, you know, I watched every single dribble of Mavs basketball for about 10 years, you know, straight before I got this job. Um, I saw it every single day. Yep. You know, we all did. Um, there's no shortcuts to that, you know, do it. And then we'll talk about it in 20 years. You know, can't have that conversation right now. Can't do it. Yeah. Uh, Oh man, good stuff, Kirk. All right, so any final, final, final thoughts, or, or are, are we good? Did we touch them all? I think I think we're in a good place because it's All Star break. We're taking a deep breath before the final twenty three push, and this is a good. This was a great way to to kind of uh, exit All Star break. Absolutely, man. Well, thank you for joining. He is Kirk Henderson at Kirk Serious Face on Twitter. You can find him on MavsMoneyBall.com or at MavsMoneyBall. Um, Although Twitter is not a good driver of their web traffic, so you can just find them on MavsMoneyBall.com, as uh, as Kirk says. Um, and hosting podcasts like Morning, Day, and Night, um, oftentimes all three. Spotify Green Room, Mavs Moneyball After Dark, Group Therapy, uh, all of that stuff, dude, he is everywhere. Uh, Kirk, really appreciate you taking some time to, uh, to talk Dirk with me, and uh, let's do it again sometime, man. Sure thing, Bobby. All right. See ya!